What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada's sports betting podcast. How does a California kid end up with his finger on the pulse of college sports in Utah? And how does that same guy win 16 straight bets to send gambling Twitter into, well, uh, Twitter? Preston Johnson, or Sports Cheetah as he's known online, has done both. And now he can be found on ESPN's first sports betting show, Daily Wager. His story and a ton of in-depth betting talk in another edition of From the Window to the Screen. It's time to head to the window. Let's go. Welcome again to The Window. I'm your host, Matt Russell. Fifth and maybe final edition of our From the Window to the Screen series, as we hope that sports will be back at the end of July and we can get back into a regular schedule of capping games and making bets. This series is designed to shine a light on people that show up on your screen trying to help you succeed at betting on sports. Joining the show today is our first guest known perhaps more by his internet alias than by his real name. You might know him by his web presence as Sports Cheetah, but if you've seen him on ESPN's still relatively new show, Daily Wager, he and his highly rated beard are featured prominently with his given name, Preston Johnson. Preston, welcome to The Window. Hey, how you doing? Uh, we'll get to your path on uh, ESPN in a second, but we have to discuss a recent tweet of yours. As best as I can tell, you've been offered various incentives to quit sugar drinks, all forms of soda, essentially. How did this come about and what are the incentives? And is this sort of what it's come to with regards to the <laughs> shutdown and the quarantine and everything else going on? Need something to bet on. Yeah, the... The ultimate thing, it's its more, I think, for my own benefit, just from a health standpoint, but the incentive is nice. It was just a July 4th conversation I had with someone, and I was saying, like, I've always thought I could just cold turkey stop drinking soda, but I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink coffee. I don't even drink tea, Like, but soda's kind of been my vice in that regard, and I've always just said, oh, I can just stop if I need to, um, but then I was, like, thinking about it, and I've never done it. So then I'm like, maybe, maybe, maybe I can't stop. Like I've gone maybe a month before okay. and not, and, and like not drinking soda or sugar and y'all drop like 10 to 15 pounds that month. So like it, like it shows <laughs> yeah. like the, you know, the difference it makes and just how unhealthy it is. And so I was sitting there and my friend said, Hey, well, if you had an incentive to do it um, outside of just getting less fat, maybe you would actually see how long you could take this. And so he kind of sparsed out those reward points where if like, if I hit a month, I get a hundred bucks, but six months, you know, is X amount more, but the goal here is to do it for two years and I get 10,000. Uh, <laughs> right. So it, you know, it goes up with time. It's kind of exponential in that regard. I should be doing it for my own benefit anyways. The incentives are nice. Um, but a few days now into this, uh, so far so good, just drinking a lot of water at this point and um, hopefully it gets me in a better shape too, because honestly with quarantine, um, and I was already like a little bigger anyways, but now I'm like sitting playing poker. I'm no longer going to the gym, which I would do a few times a week. I'd play basketball a few times a week. Uh, I was just like, I got to take a stance and, and start working on this outside of uh, everything else. So the money will be nice, but hopefully, uh, you know, it, it results in, in me dropping some, some weight as well. And then, 
um, you know, can take this guy out to a really nice dinner in two years. Yeah, no doubt. That seems like a win-win situation, uh, if you ask me. And we're definitely in the same boat with regards to gym shutdowns. So it's not necessarily a bet. It's just an incentive type thing. Um, yeah, it's just a challenge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you've been involved in a few bets over the years. Different sort of people will pop up and maybe challenge your athletic ability based on your appearance. And <laughs> yeah. uh, so tell us about something, you know, th- that's happened over the last little while, maybe that you've, uh, you know, had to deal with on Twitter and, uh, you know, how you've made a couple of bucks doing it. Yeah, it's a good segue because, you know, like, yeah, people see, oh, you're like this fat bearded guy. Like you couldn't shoot a basketball. Like there's no way. Um, so, yeah, there's been a few props I've done. And I, the one actually, the first one I ever did dates back, oh, probably seven years ago now or something when I was like kind of early on in my gambling Twitter career, if we want to call it that. Sure. Uh, Huck Seed is like a po- poker pro had he was there in vegas for the summer for the world series of poker he wanted some sort of incentive to get into the gym and actually be working out uh getting some exercise and he i guess he shoots the ball pretty well but he had some sort of real long-term bet with someone where over the course of the summer he had to shoot fifteen thousand three pointers and he had to make at least nine thousand so he had to shoot 60 percent on fifteen thousand attempts so he would go shoot like 250 to 500 a day for, you know, however long it took. Um, so I copied that. I said, this is actually a really good bet. I like, and, and I said, there's going to be a lot of people that won't think he can do it. Um, and, and, and I, and I think I added something where it's like, but I know I could. And then everyone's <laughs> like, there's no way like this fat bearded guy from Twitter, like can't shoot 60% from three. Uh, what people don't realize is there's a big difference between shooting standstill threes in an empty gym you know, with someone rebounding for you and shooting threes in NBA game where we know 40% is great. Oh, of course. Uh, a, little bit, a little bit different. Like I've seen Rajon Rondo stand in the same spot and make, you know, 12, 13 threes in a row before. Uh, it's a completely different game. So uh, that was the first one I ever did. And, and, I, and everyone bought out because I think 7,500 threes into it. I was at 63 point something percent. I don't recall wow. exactly. Um, but at that point, I would have had to have shot, you know, below 57% for them to maybe even have a chance. And that far into it, it was pretty evident that I would um, be shooting at least that. So uh, I let people buy out for some small discount or maybe made them donate the discounted part to charity, something like that. We made it at least positive for for them in some degree. Um, But then I did another Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you were able to go sort of whenever you wanted too, right? Like you could just go shoot 50 if you wanted on like the time frame. Yeah, I, exactly. I would. Uh, I just had a gym I, at the time. I was living in downtown Salt Lake City, and they had a gym like in this high rise that was pretty nice and uh, a court up there. And so we would just shoot up there. We could go whenever it was like twenty four seven. The key to this, and I forgot when I was even bringing the story because I'm just so used to Twitter. Uh, there were friends that I was telling about the Huck Seed prop from Twitter that wanted to bet me anyways. And so there were actually people there in person that were tracking everything. I also like streamed a few of the shooting sessions. So people knew I wasn't just BSing the entire thing. Um, so that was a big part of it. And so uh, I kind of had to work around their schedules a little bit, but usually it was like evenings and nights that we would just go and, uh, and I would put up shots. Um, but it led to then like a few years later, I did one where it was like an NBA three point line one, which is a little tougher. It's tougher to shoot from that sure. far out. Well, and you're not used to shooting from that far out, right? Yeah, you never are unless you're playing enough pickup games and people respect you enough that, like, in order to shoot threes, you have to shoot that far out. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, but no one's really used to it. So 
that was a fun one. It was it came after someone uh, from Twitter. It was Stucky, if people know or follow him. He had uh, he probably had an over, if I recall, in a Houston Rockets Utah Jazz playoff game, and he was complaining about how combined they only went like seventeen of sixty nine from three, something really low, and his sure. over still only lost by two points. So I mean, he should have gotten there. It should have been a win. Um, and he had put out a challenge like, you know, I could make 17 out of 69 from the NBA three point line. And which isn't that impressive at all. I don't even know, like 17 of 69 is like some 20 something percent. If I recall, it was like 24, 25%. So yeah. uh, I was like, this is like, of course you could, like everyone could do that. And I'd never really shot NBA threes, but I said, I'll lay minus, I think minus 250 or something was maybe the number that I threw out there that I can make 20 out of 69. I think I increased it to be closer to like 30%. So that was one we streamed and did uh, online. That was fun. And I had a lot of people doing that one because I was laying a big price and I upped the the amount where I had to shoot at least 30% from the NBA three-point line. Uh, but that was fairly easy. I also did a field goal kicking one. Uh, I don't okay. know if you saw that one ever, but I, that's I don't recall the field goal kicking one. I remember the basketball one. Cause I remember being okay. like, why am I watching this guy shooting? Just hoops and essentially an empty gym or, yeah, like I think it was the condo gym that you're talking about. I'm like, how did did I get here? How did that happen? Yeah, the field goal one was great because, I mean, everyone always complains about kickers at ends of games, especially betters because they're missing the field goal or the extra point that screws you over one way or the other. Um, So I've always just been curious, someone that's never kicked or tried to kick a field goal in his life, like where I could get. And so I went and kicked like three or five just test ones to see if I even had like a remote shot. And I think I made like, I think it was five. I think I made two out of the five and they were just like chip shot extra points. I think from whatever, 17 yards away. Um, And so then I put up a poll and I, and then we were going to do a a bet on it. And we actually got a few offshore sports books to, to post this bet. Um, (laughs) But but I I ended up saying something like I got to make X percent from 25 yards X percent from 30 yards, X percent from uh, 35 yards. We ended up doing whatever it was uh, from 30 yards. It was like the middle amount. And I think it was 50% from 30 yards. And I had to kick, man, I wish I remembered what the numbers were. I should have looked this up prior, but uh, regardless, I remember having to kick. uh, I think it was, I think it was 50 because believe it or not, it's actually pretty tiring. And I didn't have like the correct cleats and I'm like kicking with with a basketball shoe on and uh, it hurts your foot after like 20, 30 kicks. It's pretty uh, beat up if you're not used to it. Uh, so I think it was only 50 kicks and I had to get at least 50% from 30 yards. And I ended up getting uh, just barely over. I mean, it was actually a pretty tough one. That was, that was a good challenge. Uh, then there's like small stuff I probably do on the side with friends like poker buddies too. And sure. I've been in Vegas, but uh, those are the three main ones that kind of were public and streamed and everything for people to watch. Well, I'm definitely one of those betters who, uh, you know, does the, I could do that move i'm pretty sure most of us do <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah my number for field goal kicking is 27 yards because for one year i worked for a cfl team up here and oh, nice. we would play around on the field from time to time and one day we were just literally just kicking to see sort of how far we could kick it not even how far but sort of i don't know just you know how accurate we could be and i kicked one i swear i only kicked maybe three and I think the furthest that I even tried was a 27 yarder and I made it. So from nice. there, and this was like a decade ago, so I couldn't do it now by any stretch of the imagination. And so from then on, it was like, well, that's the standard. Anybody who misses anything under 27 yards is an embarrassment to their family <laughs> because me, I made a 27 yarder one time. Let me ask you this. I know we're going on like forever about these stupid <laughs> props, but yeah, that's what we're here for. Um, 
when because the way you're supposed to actually kick a field goal correctly, I tried to do because that was part of the deal is I think I had a full month to practice before I had to go live and, and get it. So I had as infinite amount of practice attempts as I wanted over the course of a month. And the way you're supposed to kick it is kind of with the side of your foot and you come through with your leg and, you, and it pops it kind of almost like a golf club on a golf yeah. ball. And I just, I, I had zero chance figuring that out in a month. And so the re so, so when I'm saying that my foot was hurting, uh, I didn't have the correct cleat, but I was using it. What I actually did is I found out a basketball shoe helped a lot more because I just had to start towing it because that was oh. the way I could, I could accurately get it 30 yards straight most of the time. Okay. So had I tried to just try to do it the right way with the side of my foot, to get more distance like we know like the guys have to do i can see why there's so much more variation to wide left wide right like it's really tough to do especially for someone who hadn't kicked and only had a month to practice but the towing it part i could get those straight a little bit um so i don't know if you had tried to do it with the side of your foot or did you just tow it yourself i was no it i was doing it the way i'd seen it done on tv i was doing like full okay. on like three That's steps back tough. two steps to the left like and again, it was only twenty-seven yards, but um, yeah, at that point, I sort of decided to quit while I was ahead, and that would be forever <laughs> my barrier on whether a kicker was the worst of all time or not. Well, well done. Yeah, uh, well, we'll see. But we'll see. We'll see what would happen if I did ever try it again. It would probably be a considerably uh, bigger disaster. Uh, so anyway, kind of got not off track, but that that was fun. Um, but let's start with you know we're here to talk about you, and let's start at the beginning. Uh, the beginning is seemingly uh, pretty similar to your present right now. And thankfully, you're not from Chicago. I say thankfully because my last three guests were all coincidentally from Chicago. But you're from L.A. originally. And I believe you've made it back there. And Correct. So as a kid, are you the standard Lakers-Dodgers fan or are you the counterculture Clippers Angels? Or you know, are you going to Kings Ducks games? I don't like. I don't know. <laughs> no, I am definitely a Lakers Dodgers. I have been my my whole life. I so I, I grew up in L.A. area since I was one years old. I was actually born in Utah, and I will get in more into Utah later on. But uh, so my dad's like a Utah Jazz fan, and at the time. You know, they were playing the Bulls as I was growing up. You know, they were playing the Bulls in the finals. He was rooting them on. And for whatever reason, I, I think I was five, six, seven years old at the time. But I couldn't really get attached to the Jazz. And then I was just like, maybe I was trying to be like contrarian to my dad. Like, oh, you like the Jazz? Well, guess what? I like the Lakers. No, we're but they LA. were an unsufferably annoying team. Like if the, Jeff the Hornacek, yeah, yeah. Jeff Hornacek <laughs> is true. the third best player. Like, and they were playing yeah. Michael Jordan. And as a kid, I was like, man, MJ is the best. And so well, it was easy to a fair him. amount of series against the Lakers too. When I like kind of officially jumped on the bandwagon or Lakers train, I think it was when I was eight or nine and Nick Van Exel was my favorite player. And it was that era of like Del Harris yep. and they weren't very good. Maybe they made the playoffs a few times, but would be early outs. Uh, so I definitely was just trying to be ultra like uh, hipster and contrarian versus my dad's rooting interest. Cause he was a Niners fan. He was a jazz fan and baseball wise. He did cause he grew up in Utah. There was no real baseball team for him. So he kind of jumped on the Dodgers train with me at least. Okay. Uh, no football teams, literally no football teams at the time. But what about in the college football? I mean, college football, from my perspective, is your sort of go-to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but college football seems to be your favorite to bet on, if not best to bet on. Uh, UCLA, USC, like, are you all pretty much neutral in that case? Uh, I'm definitely not neutral. Uh, 
funny just dynamic for people that aren't familiar with the LA dynamic. So you mentioned the NFL real quick. I want to say it's funny. I like jinxed LA people. When I lived there, uh, there were no NFL teams. As soon as I moved away, they got two NFL teams. Now I'm back, but uh, they just, I never had an attachment in the NFL because while I was there, there weren't any teams. I uh, grew up with uh, Kyle Bowler. I went to high school with him. He ended up playing for the Ravens for a while, Mm -hmm. a quarterback. And so we would root on the Baltimore Ravens for a while, but really never had anyone I was uh, a true fan for. But college, completely different story. And everyone that tells you in LA these days, especially when USC got so good at football with the Reggie Bush there and Pete Carroll there, they'll say they're USC fans. I'm telling you, I don't care what anyone says, nobody was a USC fan before they were good. Everyone was a Patriot fan. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I was a UCLA fan, too. Uh, I was lucky enough to to have a friend I grew up with whose uncle is John Wooden. I, I met him a few times. Like, just great, great setup. I'm a UCLA Bruin for life. Everyone just jumped ship and went to the USC side. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, this is ridiculous. And I think at the time, maybe I was starting high school and they were winning championships. And all these people all of a sudden said, oh, I've always been a USC fan. And I know for a fact they weren't. So yeah. I am definitely... UCLA, anti-USC, uh, unless I have a bet that determines something differently. But, sure. Uh, yeah, for, for basketball and football, for sure, Bruin. So you've moved back to California now. Uh, you've got a wife, two kids, I believe. Uh, is the reason for the move back the obvious one? And, of course, by that I mean to have your finger on the pulse of Big West basketball. Yes. <laughs> I need to be sitting courtside more often. <laughs> right. Or in game betting opportunities. Yeah, Riverside versus Northridge is uh you're right there. Um the the move was always kind of in the cards. Uh the Vegas part was Vegas for one reason. Uh a lot of what I'm doing and the people I'm working with are able to get down around the country or even internationally, uh, whether I'm in Vegas or not. So uh, that's not really a necessity anymore. And as other states are opening and legalizing things, it's just growing. Hopefully California is down the road in that regard too. But uh, so really it was a matter of being near to family combined with uh, my daughter starts kindergarten this fall. And right. so it kind of always been a thing where we'll get settled down there before kindergarten and, and then uh, kind of we're here to stay. So Vegas was great. It was there about five years, and uh, now it's Southern California for the rest of the way. Yeah, obviously family reasons would be the true obvious uh, answer to that question, uh, not necessarily <laughs> big, big West hoops. So, you know, growing up originally, you're talking about, you know, all of Dodgers, Lakers, USC, UCLA. Uh, do you remember at, like, what age you realized that people could bet on sports? I do because uh, so Matt gave me a rundown that I could kind of look over before we did this, and I was wanted to make sure I, I wasn't like forgetting something or missing something. So when I read this part of it, uh, I thought it was a really interesting question because I've never really been asked it before. And I remembered back; I was just trying to think what's my earliest memory of like wagering money on sporting outcomes, and the one that just keeps popping to my mind probably for a few years in a row before I even bet on anything else um, was fantasy sports. So sure. now that's not necessarily betting on sports, but it was very early on. I was loved basketball, the NBA. I was playing fantasy NBA for like five or $10 for a season with friends. Eventually it was the NFL. But the first time I kind of from there branched to, oh, I'm putting money in 
and I need these teams to win or cover spreads, whatever it may be, was March Madness pools we started doing in high school. Yep. Um, so I was playing fantasy like in middle school through high school. But uh, when March Madness was going around, we'd all fill out brackets at the very least for X amount. And whoever had the best bracket wins the pool. Um, there was some stuff that included like cover um, rates or percentages based on which school and which team or which seeds or something like that. So there was some variations. But okay. uh, yeah, fantasy sports mixed with like March Madness pools was kind of the first uh, intro to betting on anything sports related for me. Yeah, it's funny how the stages kind of the steps go up like that, right? Where it's like you realize, yeah, I can bet my buddy five bucks that this team or that team's going to win. And then, you know, that's maybe the first step. And then you kind of, like you said, get into like the fantasy realm. And of course, up here in Canada, hockey pools are like you're basically in a hockey sure. pool the moment you're born because they're <laughs> the easiest thing to track, right? Goals, assists, points, like it's from a cumulative standpoint, it doesn't get any easier than being in a hockey pool, right? Like pick 10 guys, whoever's mm -hmm. got the most points at the end of the season. So it's like as rudimentary as it comes. So maybe it's a little bit flipped from that standpoint because I'm pretty sure I was in a hockey pool when I was like six. But uh, you, know, you go on and then eventually you realize, oh, wait, like, yeah, there's point spreads for football games and I can wager – you know, different through different avenues than just betting my buddy five, 10 bucks because we disagree about who is the better team in this game or this series. So is that something that you start doing in college? And where did you go to college? Uh, so no, really kind of upping the gambling, betting, anything has still happened in high school okay. um, via poker. And poker was really where anything started for me that <laughs> on any significant scale. That's uh, another so 2003 moneymaker happens and it's blowing up it's on tv and i'm watching espn espn2 all the time anyway started playing with friends home games five ten dollars whatever it may be um, but when i was a senior so about maybe two years after that uh when we turned 18 we were allowed to start writing our own doctor's notes and in southern california there are indian casinos uh yeah. kind of spaced out around where you only have to be 18 years old to play in them most places in the United States to play poker, you got to be 21. Uh, so we would write doctor's notes on Fridays and a group of us would go play at Chumash Casino. It's up above Santa Barbara. It's in the, in this mountain area and they would run tournaments Fridays. Then we'd play like the two, five cash game. Uh, and I just was, I think really lucky early on. I also think I had a little bit of a better understanding to just how to play poker versus a lot of the people that were trying that we're just watching TV now. It's a different story now. Like the very sure. basic recreational player in poker now is like really good comparatively. So uh, back, it's it just really not even saying much that back in 05, I could beat poker games as a senior in high school, but they For just, sure. there were guys that were just so bad. Um, <laughs> so I did that and I actually was making money with that. And like, like a lot more than an 18 year old in high school should be making right. and kind of turned that into well, I should be playing online and started playing online when you know you could play on Poker Stars and Full Tilt and Absolute Poker and Ultimate Bet, all these sites, and did pretty well there too. I actually before Black Friday happened, where they, the American or the government said, "Hey, no more online poker." Um, yeah. I had a decent bankroll from that. Um, I had a third place in a in a pretty big tournament online on a Sunday on one of the sites and uh, was able to basically take that and use it as my sports betting bankroll. Uh, otherwise, I don't know if I ever would have gotten into sports betting, to be completely honest, because yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have had maybe maybe had for fun, but not as seriously. Right. Because you know, I, I probably mm -hmm. had um, 
well, half of it was still under seas with full tilt. So it's, it's like not half, but a, a good percentage of it was still tied up. Eventually it was released a few years later. Okay. Uh, but immediately I still had like 50K as, you know, like a college student where I was like, well, what am I going to do with this? And, <laughs> and and you asked where I went to college. So I went to BYU where uh, it's extremely cheap to attend school there. I wasn't really sweating that. Um, and so I had this money. I was like, well, what am I going to do with uh, – this bankroll for poker that I'm not going to like move out of country. Like some friends of mine actually started doing that really were taking poker seriously. Uh, I was not planning on doing that my whole life. So uh, I was just like, well, I'll use it to bet sports and started, you know, betting like 300 a game and just kind of picking up stuff here and there. But if I wasn't able to do that, I don't think I ever would have, you know, done much more outside of just betting for fun and recreationally with friends or more pools, more fantasy leagues, maybe for a little higher stakes as we all get older. But uh, it just was, lucky that from poker I had, you know, I think it was like 80 or 90,000 total and about 50 of it, I was able to get off back in you know 2010 when everything shut down. So uh, it was a nice little bonus. And, and yeah. I, th- I guess I thank poker for that because otherwise probably not, you know, doing this podcast today. Well, it's funny how timing sort of works out, not to date myself here, but the people who've listened to this podcast before uh, and, and listened to sort of my version of, of my story uh, are going to recognize some, some familiarities, you know, to all of this in that same sort of deal where we were signing ourselves out of class, uh, signing notes to go to the, the native casino uh, across the across the river, that kind of thing, uh, and that was back in you know I'm a little older than you are, uh, so that was back in like 1999, 2000. So that was even before okay. the pre moneymaker, yeah, yeah, which which is actually an unfortunate thing because there wasn't as enough dumb money in the in, in the pool, right? Sure, sure. Because not everybody had sort of gotten in, and so I remember having not regular games necessarily, but occasional games where we'd get five or six guys together to play. And I'd come home, uh, you know, I'd be out, you know, relatively late. My, my mom would be like, well, you know, what'd you do last night? I'm like, oh, we played poker. And she's like, oh, how'd you do? And I'd like open up my wallet and there'd be like 300 bucks in there. Mm-hmm. And just because like all my friends were dumb basically. And, yeah. and will, you know, willing to have a few beers and, and just keep throwing money into the mix. And, and we would play games like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Guts, but that's, you know, essentially as rudimentary of a poker game as you could possibly play. Like, it's literally, I think, one card or two cards. Yeah, it's like two okay. cards. Make the best poker hand you can. And it's just bluffing, right? You just go around the table and you either put, you know, your ante in or your, you know, I guess you'd, it'd be a blind. You'd put your blind in and be like, oh, do I have, you know, do you have guts? Do you have guts? Do you have guts? And you'd go yeah, around yeah. and then you'd show, you, show your hand. Uh, so very similar story, but, you know, but because, you know, I missed out on the 03 boom, like it didn't hit at the right time for me. You know, it was a little late and I was already, you know, into my like third, third year, essentially, you know, 2003, four or five would be my you know third or fourth year um you know at university mm-hmm. it was sort of too late for me to sort of take advantage of all the people just sort of stumbling upon it it would have been um you know i, I might have ended up with a similar bankroll but unfortunately sure. i did yeah. not so you go to byu um la guy goes to byu i mean your dad you said your dad had ties to utah how does how do you end up at byu that's a bit of a culture shock it is for, for most people that visit Utah. So I, I grew up LDS, BYU is an LDS school and you know, my dad's LDS. So I always had the connections. I always grew okay. up 
with that as my background. So it wasn't much of a culture shock to me uh, as it is probably for a lot of other people. Um, but even within that bubble of like being in Utah versus LA, like sure. it's, it's very different. And it still took me some time to get used to. It. I remember in my freshman year, I, I definitely at one point wanted to transfer. I was like, thought I was too cool. California kid. I, <laughs> I, I don't want to be here. Um, now a lot of LDS members of the church, uh, they serve those two-year missions. You probably, if you follow in sports closely enough, like the, the guys on the BYU football team or basketball team, they leave for two years and they come back and then everyone always talks about how they're older. Yeah. Um, so I did one of those. So I did a two-year mission in Portugal. And then when I came back to do my, uh, my sophomore year, I went back to BYU. I didn't end up transferring in the end, which I'm glad I didn't um, because that's where I ended up meeting my wife and stuff. But uh, the culture shock as a whole for me wasn't too bad. I actually loved Utah while I was there. Uh, Would never live there permanently though. Hated the snow. I hate the cold. Uh, Went to Vegas and now we're down here, hopefully in the beach, kind of in between the two extremes of cold snow and then the Vegas heat in the summers is just ridiculous too. Couldn't handle that anymore. So when you go to BYU, you're set to go to BYU, you know, what was the career plan? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up, so to speak? So my final year of high school, I was, I was big into journalism. This is actually really weird full circle. I've only talked about this on one other podcast. So if you never heard it and you're listening to this one, this is a brand new kind of background thing about me, but I was, I was all up in, uh, there was that show on ESPN. This like a sports center did like a, like a sports center anchor, American Idol version. I'm totally yep. spaced what it was called. It was called Dream Job. That's the one that Dream we did Job. On, on ESPN. It was Dream Job. That was in 2004 that it launched. And I thought that was the coolest thing. I was always already looking up to Stuart Scott, Scott Van Pelt, all those guys. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. So I did journalism. I actually covered uh, our region high school football team. And I was like the guy that did that. So I was writing about football, covering it, and did it for our little local newspaper or whatever. Um, so I had planned on that. And then when I took my actual test, like for me, it was the ACT. I'd always planned on going to BYU. So I actually didn't apply anywhere else. Um, one thing I've, for whatever reason, always been really bad at is, is test taking and the reading comprehension sections. And then I have my, you know, perfect score on the SAT or ACT math section. And okay. so they think I'm like an international applicant. For some reason, I just cannot read about like, people in igloos from 200 years ago and like what they were doing with basket weaving and answer questions about it. I just can never do it. And so I, I, my dad was like pretty smart about it. He was like, you know, you should probably do something that's like not reading English writing related. And so, and I was really good at math. So I actually initially had, I think, uh, what's the word, uh, chosen, like you have to choose a major as a freshman. And I'm pretty sure I actually chose statistics. I took some pre uh, stats courses there, and I was going to try to apply it to uh, BYU's business school and statistics as part of the business school, actually. And uh-huh. uh, then when I went to Portugal and I lived there for two years, uh, a lot of perspective starts hitting you. You're also maturing. You're also like living on your own, having to do all your own crap around the house. Uh, and I was learning a new language to eventually speak that fluently and connect with the culture and the people over there. And, you know, your priorities kind of change. And so, um, I really was interested in psychology and just thinking like, hey, I can save the world. I can talk to people. I'm going to go into psychology. And so that's really, once I got back, I, I, I was really all up on that. I was like, I'm going to do this. I took all the psychology classes. I did my undergrad and that I actually did a degree in Portuguese too, to just kind of help uh, keep up on it in case I ever okay. needed it down the road. Uh, so I actually have a degrees in psychology and Portuguese, but um, 
at that point I was like, well, psychology, like you can't make any money unless you go get a master's degree. And in most cases in that field, it's a PhD. And so I had, uh, at that point said, well, all right, what I'm going to do is, and I had been starting to bet sports some on my own from the poker bankroll. I poker had just died. I always had loved sports anyway, big fan. I had done a podcast on my own with some friends about BYU sports that actually got a sponsor at one point that was pretty cool. We did pretty well. Um, and I was just from scratch there at school. Uh, I was like, you know, maybe sports psychology is like the combo of like, I could really, you know, it's kind of starting to grow more schools and athletic programs are, are in universities, particularly we're starting to like hire sports psychologists for their teams to talk to the guys to try to, you know, optimally get these guys to perform uh, on a, on the, like emotionally and, you know, outside of the physical aspects of it all. And uh, so I applied the university of Utah up the street is one of the lone universities on the whole West coast that from B it's like 40 minutes from BYU uh, that has a sports like, uh, oh, okay. program. And so I decided to do that and sort of ditched my, I'm going to save the world and be like a therapist <laughs> idea from a few years before that. And like, all right, I'm going to do like something in between because I'm too selfish. I love sports. I got to go into sports, but the psychology side of sport. And so I did sports psychology at the University of Utah and um, had always planned on doing a PhD actually and got my master's degree and even had started a, an, another year of my PhD doing classes and work for that before betting kind of ended up taking over and being more profitable to me than going to school anymore. And I was like, why, why, am I, why would I go to school for two or three more years? So uh, that was that. And yeah, I haven't looked back since. That's incredible. So I've seen in a couple of different places that you refer to your betting acumen as betting with an edge. What does betting with an edge mean to you? Because I know it means a, you know, a little bit different to different people. Like, how would you use, you know, how would you divide in your mind the use of math, you know, statistics versus, you know, situational handicapping using the eye test, market analysis and other, you know, evaluation techniques, you know, particularly since, you know, you may be using your master's degree in sports psychology at certain points to try to, you know, get get in the mind of, of some of these players, especially in college, college football and basketball. Sure. So uh, initially, I mean, I definitely was betting without one for at least a year, probably more like two years, even when I did start betting, it wasn't just like, Oh, magically, I know how to beat these lines and beat the books and beat the market. It's, it's really tough. And it was a lot of uh, practice in the sense that you're doing things and betting, like at least meaningful amounts of money to you mm -hmm. getting that experience on how to manage it. Poker helped in the fact that I could at least know how to manage a bankroll because uh, I'd been doing that anyways. But then just talking to a lot of people, like-minded people getting into forums and then ultimately Twitter and trying to, um, you know, just better w my process. Now, uh, the way I think the easiest way to explain it, I even, you know, tell people now who don't really know what I do. Uh, you know, if I would ask if you're betting with an edge, like if, if I was to ask you heads or tails and, you know, it's a 50-50 proposition, you pick heads or tails, uh, neither of us would have an edge, whether it landed heads or tails, right? It's right. we're getting paid. It'd be break even, you know, in a vacuum for infinity. Uh, if I offered you eleven dollars to your ten to pick heads or tails, well, now you're you know you're getting one point one to one on a proposition that you're going to be winning fifty percent of the time, 
Um, yeah, I'll also, flip coins with you all day. Yeah, if that's the you case. would do that every time. So that's, so that's your edge, you know, that getting that 1.1 to 1, that's the difference. And so you kind of take that coin flip example where someone can recognize, okay, yeah, that's an actual advantage or an edge. Uh, and we're looking at sports, you know, and I have my own numbers and projections I'll use and I'll compare them to the sports market. And I can say, oh, hey, here's a, a, a 2 or 3% edge in this game. Um, so I'm going to bet it. And because I trust at least not to the degree I would heads or tails, because that's like 100%, 50-50, right. but at least I trust enough that, you know, my numbers and projections are going to be uh, good long-term. And so you're finding those edges and discrepancies in markets. You're betting them knowing that over the course of a sample that's really big, you're going to be profitable. S small samples, downswings definitely happen. I've had down months, down, down seasons, depending on the league. Uh, that'll always happen. That's always part of gambling in general. But uh, betting with an edge is, you know, uh, finding the advantages in what you expect to happen, uh, what's predictive, what's going to happen, and then betting better numbers than where they end up closing and hopefully where the results end up being. Well, and, and the one thing that you mentioned that is the thing that I think is hard for people to understand, and I mention it all the time on this podcast, is that it really is at times 2 3 4% uh, is enough of an edge and for you know people who are just starting out you know they don't realize that it's not black and white right it's it's a gradient of gray and that two three four percent is all you need to make a bet totally yeah i mean that's like one of the downsides of now of you know being on espn and or even just posting picks at all on twitter anything like I'm posting a pick I think wins like 54 or 55% of the time, maybe 56% of the time, whatever it is. People don't understand that. That means I think it loses 45% of the time. Right. Like, so when it loses and they're really upset, it's like, yeah, I, I thought it would lose 45% of the time. And like, well, why would you bet on something that you think is going to lose? I just, they're not recognizing the eventual literal math to it all that you're just trying to grind out small advantages and edges and profits over the course of higher volume and you know ultimately getting more down then you know you can increase the roi yeah i was actually on a podcast with uh, it was a hockey podcast this week and i was trying to explain to the host that last year when the blue jackets beat the lightning right in the first round it was a sweep and, you know, I tried to explain to him, I had the Blue Jackets in that series, fully expecting not to win that bet. And the fact that it was a sweep was even more insane, right? It was the mm -hmm. best hockey team in, in, you know, in the league against essentially, you know, the worst team to qualify for the playoffs. And just trying to get somebody to wrap their head around that, that I would go into a bet, almost not knowing, of course, but pretty sure that I was going to lose that bet. It was just too good to pass up from like you said, an edge standpoint. Like I had the number closer to like six, 7% of an edge. And you know, I'm like, oh, great. Now I have to bet against the lightning. Like this is- So I, I, don't, awesome. I don't actually follow hockey well enough. I definitely don't bet it. Was, if, but if I recall, like even, what, what was the series price before? Was it like four or five to one? Like it wasn't even yeah. that high. No, it was like, yeah, it would have been, it was pretty close to, I want to say it was like 450 plus 450. Yeah, okay. Which and, is nuts because, yeah, you're betting on a team that's plus 450. Like most people will see like 
Wait, so you're betting on a team you think is going to lose 80% of the time. And you're like, yep, but that's because I know they're going to lose 80% of the time and they're giving me four and a half to one or five to one, whatever it might be. And, you know, that's worthwhile. So, yeah, no, that's a perfect example. Yeah. And it ended up being a sweep, which was even like, I wish I, I wish I'd bet. Yeah, to sweep, you probably could have got a good price on that. Yeah. A hundred to one or something like that, or at least just rolled them, rolled them over, which, uh, which I did a little bit, but yeah, it's just hard to explain to people in that case. So, um, you know, you start betting. And, you know, you'd been doing this podcast for, you know, Utah sports, essentially, you know, how do you decide that you want to share your sports betting acumen with others? And, you know, where do you begin, essentially? Like, is it just a sort of a slow move from the forums into Twitter and, you know, or, or was there sort of like a, you know what, I feel the need to be in the media, even sort of in a small way at first? Yeah, there was like a conscious decision I had made where I was like, you know, maybe I should. I had been following from my personal Twitter account some like betting people that are still around on Twitter now that had kind of made a name for themselves already. And I just thought, you know, I think I could bring something to the table. And the first time I did anything, it was actually Todd Furman, for people that know him. He used to do his own blog. I think it was called Todd's takes. It was like mm-hmm. a betting blog. Um, but he tweeted out before, uh, I think one, one, a season and basically said, if anyone has any interesting ways to approach betting markets and they want to write about it, let me know. And, you know, if it's good enough or it makes sense, I'll, I'll publish it on my blog. And so at the time I, so I reached out and I said, Hey, I'm right. I'm wrapping up a, a degree in, in a master's degree in sports psychology. Um, I think it's interesting just to kind of looking at that whole side of things as far as performance and sport. Um, maybe I'll write something I've been betting now for the last couple of years on my own. I'd played poker prior to that regularly. Uh, let me put something together. There was, I don't even remember the details like of what the piece actually included or anything, but uh, um, it may have actually had to do with assessing now that I am talking about it, assessing a team's, uh, performance post perfect game for oh, like okay. a short period of time and looking back historically versus, and it was like an angels pitcher, I think that threw a perfect game. Um, anyways, that just like hit me, but, uh, regardless, I posted that and he's like, well, what Twitter handle do you want to use? And I had my personal one that I didn't really want to use because one, it was like my personal handle also because I, I grew up in a religious family and I didn't want to know that I was like betting on sports and like now <laughs> writing about it and stuff. So I was like trying to keep that close to the chest. But uh, so I was like, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll give it, I'll, I'll create a new handle and send it to you. And so I created the sports cheetah handle just so that when I published that article on his blog, I, you know, people could follow me somewhere. And then I decided when I had that and the, you know, I was able to get it on a blog, then I could start posting stuff that, I was actually betting and that first week and this will never happen again in my life is the luckiest you know thing that's ever happened to me. And you know, it's, it's on there, it's documented, but the first 16 bets I ever posted on my handle all won. Wow. And, and so everyone was just like within a week I had, you know, two to 3000 followers. I had some other uh, sites picked up the, the run and like we're writing about it. And so that was really the, it was in you know a total of like 10 days that I went from, yeah, maybe I'll write and you know see if Todd wants me to write something about this to him letting me, then to needing to create this Twitter account. And then like, all right, well, I'm going to start posting plays like other guys on Twitter are doing. And then just totally ran hot for, it was like a five or six day period. 
Yeah, you're a golden god at that point in the Twitter <laughs> world. Where did we find this guy? So, you, you know, you're starting in the writing, essentially. Uh, you know, you sort of work your way up. The first I think I saw you was through a subscription website called Wager Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that site would be considered like a tout site now. So now the word tout has something of a negative connotation on it. How do you look at that cottage industry now and differentiate, you know, the idea that you're paying for content versus paying for picks? Sure. So yeah, I mean, that's what happened as I was just posting on Twitter for a while. That, that was that 16 and 0 start was during baseball and NBA playoffs over the summer. And what was really nice was that I was also fortunate that that upcoming football season, and no one else knew this, um, but because I was working in had connections with you know doing sports psychology with a master's degree, uh, I had connections through friends and family, coaches at BYU and coaches at Utah for the football team. That football season, I posted all my BYU Utah and Utah State actually, I just called it like the three, the trio of Utah teams all the football plays on Twitter and they just mm-hmm. crushed be like 74%. And I was betting stuff like every week in almost all of their games. And um, primarily was the fact that no one realized that year that BYU actually had some NFL level talent on their defense. So unders came in the first seven or eight weeks of the season. Then I got info that Riley Nelson, the quarterback at the time for BYU uh, had broken vertebrae in his back and that he was going to be out um or at least playing very, very limitedly against Utah in the big Holy War rivalry game. So we loaded up on Utah plus six, the money line, the under, those all won. And just like it kept stirring up this power, like this guy just can't lose. And so that was where I was very fortunate because it, like you're talking about these waves of being in the right place at the right time. My connections just through those schools and coaches and just having worked at some of you know Utah primarily and then connections at BYU, it gave me a lot of info that helped uh, – me, you know, during that college football season. And then it was after that, that uh, the guys at wager talk reached out and said, Hey, you're posting all your stuff, you know, on Twitter or on some other websites that I had been, you know, posting picks at in, in content for, uh, you could post them with us and sell them and make a lot of money. Uh, and I was still pretty naive to the whole, just getting in kind of the tout connotation and the negative sure. side of it. Um, cause I was, I still am young, but I was also a lot younger at that time. Um, <laughs> but I was like, well, this is, this is great. They're going to pay me. I'm going to make a lot of money now just doing the same thing. And at the time and I was winning, I mean, it was all, it's all on Twitter and people initially were, you know, they were following and just saw that it was winning information. Now, um, what I think hurt well, like in the end, so like by the third year, I had a three-year contract that I did with them. And okay. by, by the third year I was doing that. It, it, it had gotten to the point there were some people that had approached me privately and were trying to get down on games privately before I would release them uh, in college football primarily. And it, it got to the point where like, if I sent something out through the system and the play was emailed to everybody that, you know, had access to the wager talk site, um, you know, in two minutes, the line would be gone. And right. it, was, it was, it wasn't really available for people to get down and and I was betting still, and I still do try to bet as early in the week as I possibly can. And so, you know, that's part of the advantage when you're betting is if you're able to, uh, you know, get down and, and bet earlier in the week before the market matures, then your your ROI is going to be bigger. Uh, and so there's just a lot of kind of hurdles and obstacles organizationally to get down significant amounts earlier <laughs> yeah. in weeks. Um, but regardless, it didn't really make sense that I could 
kind of old school tout style, like buy my picks package and, and sell picks when people were unable to get the picks I was sending out because they were um, impacting the market too heavily. And and then sometimes they would move back like by the next day. So in, in cases, maybe I was wrong. Um, yeah. But for the majority of the time, you know, they uh, they were tough for people to bet. in. so at that point, I know it's like an ethical thing for most people anyways. Um, right. But at that point, I was like, okay, like I was doing a pretty, what I felt like a good job for people that were with me. But by that third year, it was really tough for people to to get the same numbers that I would like them to get. And so it doesn't make sense or I don't think it's fair to be selling picks directly like that anymore. Um, I still think there's going to be a huge space for like content subscriptions for very, very cheap. Like even like ESPN Plus or ESPN Chalk. For sure. Uh, like you have to pay four ninety nine a month for it, all of our stuff. Like so, in theory, are we selling picks at four ninety nine a month? Like, yeah, maybe if you want to go there. There's other, you know, um, DFS fantasy related sites that have been selling uh, content and, and stuff in that regard. Uh, I, I think in the end, there's like if people want to pay for information and they ultimately make their own decisions and they don't have the time to put in a lot of the work um, for reasonable costs like that. Like, I still don't really have a problem with it. Uh, but if you're someone that's, you know, selling direct through picks packages to someone that they no longer can even get what you're selling, because going back to those, you're talking about the two to three to four percent edges, like you don't realize like that's what we're looking for. It seems so minuscule. Well, as soon as a football game moves a point, then the two to three percent is gone and now they're flipping coins. And so that just doesn't seem right in the yeah. end. But uh, yeah. And, and, you're, and you're making you're releasing a pick and then it becomes a race for all of the, your subscribers to get that line. And of course, then that's going to move, right? And the more successful you are, the more yeah. difficult it's going to be for your subscribers. And yeah, like pay for content, you know, everybody, you know, people buy Phil Steele's magazine, right? For college football. For and sure. yeah. it isn't because they're super hardcore into college football in the most purest way possible, right? Like they want the information to make bets with. Right. Like they want to familiarize themselves with the teams as quickly as possible uh, in order to make bets. And, you know, that costs money. That's 20 bucks. Right. So there's obviously a line, like you said, you made a great example with the, with the chalk and insider. What is now ESPN plus is, yeah, you know, people are going to subscribe for information. But yeah, where it gets a little dicey is when, like you said, you're paying for very specific picks that may not necessarily be available to to people as well. And of course, also some of the Real pricing quick. can be crazy too. I, I will say this about ESPN plus I, I would, and everyone forgets this part. It's like, Oh, your, your articles behind a paywall. I personally betters. I know they, I would pay $499 a month to be able to access and sweat all of the small school college football and college basketball they have on all the ESPN through 25 that, that exists through the app. Like you can't watch sure. a lot of these games unless you're an ESPN plus subscriber. So for $5, if you're actually betting regularly to watch, you mentioned the big West hoops like Riverside, Northridge on mm -hmm. like actually watch the game and sweat it. Like that's that it, it covers and many more. And then they have all the 30 for thirties and the Michael Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Peyton Manning series is that they've done. Uh, so outside of even the written content, fantasy sports betting related, mm -hmm. like I would pay so much more just to be able to watch these games every week. Um, so most people should just get it for that anyways. If oh, you're definitely. Actually Betting, uh, when it's all said and done but unfortunately for us in canada and listen i have you know listeners in canada oh true press, yeah I've heard. but for yeah. us in canada we we can subscribe to espn plus and of course get the uh you know the, the paywall the stuff that's behind the paywall on the website but we can't get the games 
right? So those are un, unavailable to us. So yeah. when the college uh, basketball season conference tournaments roll around, there's this sort of middle gap where anything that's on ESPN Plus, we don't have access to. But anything that like is not even like, to the level that where it's ESPN plus worthy, you got that. <laughs> we can go, you know, you can go on to like the MIAC web, not even the MIAC website. Cause I'm not even sure that they have uh, live stream games or sometimes they do. It's literally like a tripod camera that just sort of sits yeah, there. The cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. But like a lot of the Northeast, like literally the NEC website is one that we joke about <laughs> that we're on constantly in that first week of March because we have to, you know, bypass all of the mid level uh, conference tournament games and we can only get the ones that even ESPN plus is like, no, sorry, that's not even yep. for us. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully one day we can sort of figure things out. From I, I actually a, didn't uh, know that that was a thing until we started doing daily wager and people would miss the show live and they'd say, how can we watch them? We say, just, you know, go in the app. And if you're, if you're subscribing to ESPN plus, then you can watch any show that they show live after the fact, like it's your own like TiVo or, or DVR or whatever. Um, but people in Canada were like, we can't find it. We can't find it. And we finally realized that in Canada, you can't even do that either. And then realized, wait, they're not able to access like any of these sporting uh, game, like games on, on that they're showing um, outside of just their, their two main networks. Well, so there's a hack for this. There's a TV hack for this. Oh, nice. And I might as well bring it up. Now. I was going to bring it up at the after you were done, but since we, since it came up, we'll bring it All up. Right. I don't condone hacking, but no, go no, ahead it's not, not a literal, not a literal hack. <laughs> But it's a, it's a life hack in, in for deep, deep college <laughs> basketball stuff. So the way we access college basketball in, in this country is via what's called the Super Sports Pack, which a lot of the um, big cable companies and satellite companies will provide, right? It's essentially all of the NHL Center Ice, the uh, NFL Sunday Ticket, though not anymore mm -hmm. because that's on uh, DAZN. Um, but the uh, what's the NBA one? Uh, Cord League Pass. So League pass, thank you. Um, but there's also one for college football and for college basketball. So essentially a league pass for that. And it's literally just all the ESPN networks, right? It's ESPN, ESPN2, SEC network, and so on and so forth, right? So that's obviously great for Saturdays for college football. But for basketball, um, it's these separate channels. You know, for me, it's 431 and down. And you go there and it just, at some point during the night, it flips on ESPN. And it doesn't necessarily do it right at game time. It does it, say, a half hour before the game starts. Mm. So you guys are often on Daily Wager at 6.30 to 7. And so you can flip over to whatever game is on ESPN 2 that night. you get 30 night, minutes of it or And something. you get 30 minutes of Daily Wager right there. So nice. if, you're, if you're into college basketball enough and, you know, I would say you should be uh, that you would that you would order the super sports pack, then, you know, be sure to tune in half an hour before your game starts. And I, even over. if it's yeah, and it's even if it's not a game that I necessarily care about, like that's and I'd rather watch that half hour than any of the other ESPNs, because obviously it's more pertinent content for me. Yeah, nice. That's uh, good. Yeah. So really cool sort of hack there for for people. Uh, speaking of added value, not that I'm necessarily selling uh, cable packages out here, but um, uh, so let's get into some the actual sports betting, you know, nitty gritty here for you. How much do you play uh, derivative markets, prop bets and that sort of thing? And then sort of what percentage of your action on a nightly basis or on a Saturday afternoon uh, is live betting? So I do bet 
props, uh, it's tougher to get down to that prop. So like the edges are bigger on props, but the limits are way smaller. Not everywhere even offers them. Uh, so it's, you know, it's been easier and better to get down since some of the other land-based casinos like DraftKings or FanDuel have started popping up uh, because they're fantasy-based. They'll have props on the pretty big offerings and wide variety of offerings on props every day for NBA, uh, baseball, and then, you know, weekends for football. Uh, I don't bet them as heavily as I used to. Um, Anything that I now have is really just pieces of other people I'm staking to some degree to get a piece of their action on props, whether they be like over under strikeouts in baseball. Uh, I, you know, NFL player props, NBA player props, uh, some golf matchup stuff. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of that is... Uh, not of mine. So I'm not the originator of those bets, but I still see value in them and am able to, you know, essentially pay someone else to put in the time and to do the work and stake them in that way that I'm still getting paid off long term and it's still worth my while. Uh, and, you know, time's essentially the biggest. I mean, that's like not a, nothing groundbreaking, but it gets to a point where, like, so I do both football and basketball leagues and I usually bet baseball through June, but I don't bet it all the way through the summer when the market tightens up. Sure. Uh, but I also start prepping for football and it takes me some time. And I used to write a whole college football preview guide thing. And that took me a long time. Um, but, and then you start, so I have two kids now, they're both younger. Like you just start having to try to prioritize what's important. And, you know, I could try to, you know, like golf's a huge thing now because it's been being played the last few weeks. And right, the only thing. I could try to dig in and model golf. Uh, I don't really have the time to, don't really care enough to at this point. I could try to do NASCAR. There's been some some races. Like I just I don't have the time to do a NASCAR model out of the blue. So it just it, it kind of got to that point where I was uh, I was doing props and and I still have some player projection stuff I, I do for my, my MBA model is player based, but I ultimately just kind of leave that up to some other guys I trust do a good job. And um, it's kind of honestly it's this it's it's almost stress free and you're just kind of collecting like almost like you're investing in something and you're collecting a little bit more than you invested right every right. couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, so that's been kind of my experience in the derivative markets in that sense. There's still like some first halves, first quarters, second half stuff. I'll, I'll bet for sure as far as derivatives outside of props, but um, and then even just some like regular game NFL prop stuff, like um, like first to score, what will be the nature of the score, field goal, touchdown, safety, uh, yes, no, defensive score, special team score. There's some of those that always will offer some value. Uh, oh, okay. Shots on like first player to score on a nationally televised NFL game. Um, oh, base uh, basketball, like who wins? That this one's actually still exists and it's pretty uh, exploitable. But uh, give it to who, us. Who scores first? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna be able to tell you everything, but the it's who scores first in an NBA game. You're like, oh well, that's pretty much a coin flip. But there's definitely certain centers and guys yep. that jump for certain teams that are more likely to get the jump than their opponent and more likely so than the price that's being offered on a who scores first prop, which isn't very widely available anyway, but that's just like another small thing that um, I've, I've gotten pieces of during or over the years. Um, but then kind of now getting into in-game betting, uh, what percentage of my, I would say it's 20 to 25%. Maybe it's okay. more like, 15 to 20% because I, I, I do I do less in game for NFL now 
but on a Saturday, it's probably more like 25%, but I'll probably have like 20 pregame bets on a Saturday. And then, uh, at least four or five, probably second half bets. Now it used to be more for sure. The second half market and in game market in general has definitely gotten a lot better in football. So, uh, at this point, it's kind of like whoever's first to the market opening gets the <laughs> half point edge on a, key total number for a second half or a key number for a side and and then that's that so and nfl is even worse so it's it's tough now um i would say as far as in game in running uh basketball still presents a lot of good opportunity especially if you're following along there's just some there's huge runs in basketball it's just kind of the nature of variance as a whole but also if you're like i have a whole like spreadsheet divvied out of that i just created on my own there's just like of uh coaching patterns and rotation patterns for every team and kind of how those certain pockets of players on the floor perform on average versus others. And so certain times of games or when certain key players are out or in off the bench that sure. maybe the market's undervaluing because right now an in-game you know, offering is just an algorithm that's basing the current score, how much time's left and where the, the closing numbers were as far as the, the point spread in the total um there's some advantages to be had there then there's like the unique times if you're really watching and following along that oh so and so actually got into foul trouble or so and so just went into the locker room because of a potential injury so sure. there's definitely some stuff to take advantage of in basketball that's just kind of constant if kind of like it's like you're sitting down in an office and you're just focusing on all these games and constantly checking lines and prices and different books and shopping in general is going to be we talked about betting with an edge like you got to be able to shop you have to allow a lot of outs to increase your your ROI there and that's the same with in-game betting um, but yeah i def definitely am doing that more regularly uh outside of just like second half bets and stuff for nfl or college football as well football in general um mm -hmm. would you say your in-game strategy you know would you find yourself more leaning to the score gravitating you know back towards closer to a tie i.e you know somebody some team getting up three touchdowns and you're live betting uh, that it's yeah, going yeah. to be closer or versus or you know, watching the first quarter of a game and being like, oh, shit, this team is just definitely, you know, in trouble today. Like, even though the line might have been 10, you know, now it's 14. I don't care. Like, are, like how important is the pregame line for you uh, relative to, you know, your in-gaming? Like, are you trying to gravitate back to that original, uh, you know, in like pregame line in your in-game betting? Sure. So this is a really good question. There's a lot going on here. I'll, I'll start with uh, answering the first part. It, kind of like you're saying is if a team was favored by seven before the game and it's only tied at halftime, did I find myself backing them? Because I was like, oh, well, it's going to regress. Like they're the better team. It's going to come back. Um, no, no, it actually was more regularly the other way. And, okay. and I'll get into that to a second. Um, because you, and then your second part to that, which is a really good question, what level am I kind of valuing the pregame number versus what's happened over the course of one or two quarters? And when it's all said and done, we talk about this when like, you know, people laugh at, Oh, you lost. I can't believe you backed this team. And it's like, well, yeah, well I did think they were going to lose like 45% of the time still. So like, yeah. I, 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 like it's going to happen. This is still, even after all that, a one game sample of what like so many things can happen in a one game sample. It's just so meaningless, let alone a one half. Now there are going to be some things that stand out within, you know, the box scores and some of the the, the stats that you're going to be getting or and implementing into what I like, like a like a second half calculator that you'll have to project what the total should be second half, what the spread should be. But all, really, it's 
should be basing what the closing lines were because you have this super efficient market right before a game kicks off. Sure. Everyone in the world is betting into it, whether they're smart, dumb, doesn't matter. And they've had all week to do it. And they've had all week to do it. And this is the number the market thought was the most fair. And assuming all that information was correct, there wasn't like a quarterback that magically was, you know, scratched right before kickoff or something. Those numbers are probably spot on, you know? And so you need to trust those more often than one half of what you've seen so far. Again, unless there was an injury or something that came up. Um, so really you're basing that pregame number. And it's like what the in-game models will do that, you know, books are offering. They're looking at those numbers, what the current score and time is and trying to set, Hey, this is what the second half line should be based on for football. Who's getting the ball is a big deal, obviously to start the second half mm -hmm. who kicked off to start the first half. Um, but so anyway, so going to your point is I found early, early on, it's not as much the case at all anymore, yeah. but early on you would find the market always kind of shading towards the team that needs to regress to the mean, especially if it was a bigger favorite. Oh, they they were, they closed minus seven and a half. They're tied at halftime. Like, wow, they're, you know, they're only minus four and a half right now at half. Like, wow, what a great adjusted number. It's only minus four and a half. Everyone else was betting seven or seven and a half. Yeah. Um, so I'd find myself a lot of the times playing the other way and finding value on the plus four and a half, especially if they were like a team getting the ball back first. It's just, it was just trying to find like the market inefficiency, which lasted probably really, really was really strong for probably like three years that I did it regularly. And then definitely the last two to three uh, it's, it's like you have to be first to maybe the half point that you have that's worth betting. And if you're not, like it's pretty tough, at least where I'm at, um, to, to beat second halves regularly if you're not just super quick. So uh, the market there definitely sharpened up. It's way more efficient. But for a while, there is there is definitely an edge. And there's still, I think, some advantages in second half totals for college basketball especially. Um, mm -hmm. But there's so many teams. There's a lot of schools. There's a lot of information out there there. Uh, I would say that's still a market that's generally beatable as far as second halves go. Um, but for football, I mean, for at least for me, I mean, I'm fine admitting it. It's, it's, it's tough, especially in the NFL. I think, I think last year in college, I did okay betting second halves, but NFL's basically break even or a slight loss. I think for me for like three straight seasons. Are there any circumstances where you go into a game going, I'm not going to bet this game uh, pre flop, so to speak. Uh, but I will be looking to get, you know, a live number at some point. Like, is there a strategy, you know, here and there for that? For you? Sure. Yeah, I've I've done that at times. Like, especially there's some like uh, somewhat like correlated things, like 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 a Clemson game in college football where they're favored by forty five and a half. Sure. Yeah. And you're just like fairly certain that they're gonna score first, and yeah. you can probably get forty nine and a half after they go up seven zero. Right. Or maybe they go up, they're going to be up 21-0, and you might even get a 50-something. Yeah. Um, there's many times where I'll bet some of my position before the game, but save some of it to try to bet in game or save for second half. But also, you, you, if, if your side that is getting 45.5 points scores first and you didn't right. have anything on it at all, then you like hate yourself because you're just never going to get a better number the rest of the game. It just won't come up again. Like you're probably yeah. covering at that point and you're like, wow, okay, I left money on the table. So uh, it definitely, I, I don't want to try to like solely do that unless there's some sort of this player's 75%, he's going to give it a go. I want to see how he looks like, especially in basketball, you know, like how big of an impact or how big is this injury hurting him or if it's a quarterback in football. Like there's been times where I won't bet something to kind of wait and see in that regard. Sure. But as far as like strategies, there's probably been a few times that I've tried to manipulate and getting better numbers live. And 
I kind of just realized it's if you want maybe better to break up the variance, at least bet some before the game and then mm. save some of that position to use during the game. And if you don't end up using it all, it's probably because you either won the bet anyways, which is never a bad thing. You at least won sure. some pregame. And if you do use it and you get a better number, then you're at least in a better position for a portion of your bet. And so th there's some opportunities there that can be taken advantage of. Yeah, especially in basketball, in college basketball, you realize, you know, the the clear better team could, you know, likely phone in the first half and destroy, you know, the lesser team in the second half. Uh, college basketball, you, you had a good example there with Clemson. Uh, you know, you know you're going to get that entire Sweeney family in in the fourth quarter. Uh, <laughs> so, which could be good or bad because, of course, Dabo's going to try to get them all, you know, all of his son's sure. touchdowns. At the yeah. end. So when that has to be factored into the handicap, like, you know, we've gone pretty deep. So on the show would you consider yourself like in the role of an, you know, part educator then? Yeah, I think so. Um, Cause there's guys, you know, some of those guys are more there for entertainment, right. You know, so, but you're there primarily because you know what you're talking about and you know, the time that you're allowed to talk just be by the nature of television is relatively little, you know, you can't go 10 minutes yeah. in depth about anything. So it's a really tricky spot for you. But yeah, I, I will. Yeah, I will say that that is probably the toughest part of doing TV. I hadn't done any TV prior to ESPN and I had done radio. I did my own podcast for fun. Uh, I'd done a few videos before, but really TV is different because it's live and the pressure's on. But like there's someone talking in your ear. You're also trying to listen to Doug or in this case, Doug Kazarian's the host of the show. Um, and then they give you like 45 seconds to break something down. And I'm used to doing podcasts or radio where, like you said, you have 10 minutes or longer to, to sure. dive into a game. And so you have to kind of realize, all right, well, what's important to the viewer? What are the most important points or factors? Uh, definitely, like you said, you're trying to educate. There's definitely times where because the other thing is it's like a constantly evolving market that's moving. And so like the night before I'll send in what I think is worthwhile betting. But yeah. by the time the next morning rolls around and the morning moves happen, like maybe half of those games are no longer even within range to bet that I think are even profitable bets. Sometimes there'll still be some that are, but then by the time we're live or in some cases, like as we're starting segments or during commercial break, like a number will move. And so there's been times where it's like, Hey, like this was going to be a play. It moved from, you know, two sixteen and a half to two eighteen and a half. Now it's a pass. Like this is why. And so I'm trying to like explain to people to understand. Like even though some people probably don't think there's a big difference between two sixteen and a half and two eighteen and a half in an NBA total. Uh, this is the difference between it being a profitable bet and a losing bet. I'm not <laughs> right. betting it anymore. Uh, maybe watch, you know, watch for it. Shop around if you can get two seventeen or better. Then that's my buy point. Something like that. So you're educating yeah. kind of as you're going and as you're placing bets. And you know, some people don't care. They just want picks and they hope you win. Um, but there are people out there that are trying to get better themselves, trying to learn the process and, you know, eventually, uh, you know, do most of their own work. And you know, those people are the funnest to talk about. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of Twitter and, and like doing this podcast or any podcast yeah. or anything is just talking through the process part of it all. And people that are really trying to get better and appreciate um, whether you're wrong or right, that you're putting yourself out there at all.
Yeah, and that's and that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. Because listen, I, you know, I don't expect people to sit there with a pen and paper and write down every game that I'm betting and do the exact same thing. But like you said, if you can, you know, do your own work at some point and be happy doing it, because you know, I like betting on sports, and I think that it's a uh, it's a fun augmentation to the hobby of watching sports. And so, education is important, you know, for me for people, uh, especially here in Canada, like we're probably on the verge of a full legalization uh, as well. And in a weird way, mm -hmm. we've actually sort of been ahead of you guys with sort of what we're allowed to do with yeah. regards to online books and that sort of thing. And so it'll be an interesting sort of change. Once can I, that can I add a, sure. I'll add one more bit of advice. Kind of this reminded me, and I've been telling people this more like the last year, um, never really, like hit me prior. Um, okay. So like, I, like it, whether it costs you money or not, you're willing to pay it or not. Any and all information, if you're able to sift through it and find like the nuggets that are worthwhile, uh, I think is really, really useful. So like people think, oh, like, so you're like a quote unquote professional, like you do your own thing. You don't really care what anyone else says. Like that's absolutely incorrect. I, yeah. people, I, I listen to like during like the heart of like basketball, football season, I listen to between 30 and 40 podcasts per week. Like I'll go two or three X if I can and just yep. like fire through them. I'm reading as much and as many articles as I can from like local beat writers, like any bit of information, whether it's regard to an injury or just a change of style and gameplay and tempo or pace for a, a college basketball or college football coach. Like those, that goes such a long way. So like, I'm, I'm saying this partly because like people that are unappreciative of when you try to put yourself out there, it's like really annoying, but really <laughs> there's so many people out there that aren't even on TV on ESPN that do a lot of good work that I'll subscribe to their stuff. I'll pay for any and all info. If it makes me win one game that year that I otherwise wouldn't have bet or Absolutely. would have, or kept me off of a loss, then like it pays itself off completely. So uh, just try to take in as much as you can, especially if you're just starting because all the info is, is really helpful. Um, and then as you go, I think you'll get better at realizing like which information is actually worthwhile. And then, you know, kind of narrowing in on, um, what's valuable and what isn't, and then that'll get you, you know, pretty far in and of itself. Yeah, and you can you can think of somebody as just an absolute idiot, and even if that idiot is unsuccessful and is only winning forty five percent of their games, they're still winning forty five percent of their games. So there's going to be some anecdotes and something they say along the way that is going to trigger, like you said, either taking you off a game or putting you onto a game. And more information at all the time is better. I have a question now for you. This is kind of a higher, higher, like philosophical question. Love it. Do Do you think that somebody can intentionally only win forty five percent? No. Okay. No, and uh, the most interesting right. thing this coming season is uh, the uh, the last place award that the Circa Million is going to offer for people. Have you heard this? I actually haven't. They're doing, they're paying out last place. They're paying out a last place, sort of a quote unquote booby prize. And it'll be interesting to see what that score is because you have to submit picks, obviously, right? Like uh -huh. if you miss a week, you're out for that. Right. You're and not going to qualify. Yeah, or you yeah. don't qualify. So it has to be everybody, you know, all 17 <laughs> weeks, 85 games. And I'll be interested to see like what the actual score is. I mean, that. for most people, they, probably have a better chance of getting that or excuse me, a similar chance of getting that as they would, you know, getting first, if you're oh, kind yeah. of just flipping a coin anyway, there's no real difference. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard about that yet. 
Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what what that actually ends up looking like. Uh, so I'd be remiss. You know, obviously we're in a really weird time here. So with regards to prep for the coming seasons, how are you treating the restarts from a handicapping perspective? And then has uncertainty about college football specifically delayed or inhibited your preparation for this season? Like I feel unmotivated to start college football prep because I don't believe that it's happening or at least in the way that, you know, the schedule looks right now. I feel like a lot Mm -hmm. of this is going to be a waste of time. So what's your take? I don't know if I have a take there. I'm trying to be optimistic, but I think I'm leading your way as far as <laughs> will it actually happen or will it happen at least uh, the way that they are scheduled to now as a full season, starting on time, all that. I, I'll, I'll say this though. So actually being employed by ESPN, like they're paying me still. So I'm still having to do content. And mm-hmm. so this entire time, like if, if, if Caesars, who's the partner book with ESPN puts out NFL, season win totals, you know, at the end of March or beginning of April, whenever it was. Um, and they were first to market, I think, to do that. Like, then we need to be discussing them. So I need to start doing work and prepping and having some sort of opinion for those. I also, right. you know, I might as well bet them then if I can, which <laughs> I was still in Vegas. So I did, you know, they ended up doing college football as well really early on. So I bet a bunch of college football season win totals. I did a lot of preliminary work for that. If I wasn't doing that, I don't think, meaning if I wasn't, working with ESPN, I don't think sure. I would have. So mm-hmm. I think that's the difference. I know a lot of pros I know have just really taken the time off and haven't done a ton. They've maybe tried to like uh, mess with some stuff and like improve a few things with their models or process once the season start again, or they do start down the road. Um, mm-hmm. But not many are like we're firing early, early on futures. And it kind of depends on what situation you're in. You know, a lot of kind of lower level grinder guys or worried about no sports for a few months and they don't have an income and some that are just, you know, absolutely, you know, good with money. Don't mind putting a bunch of money into uh, futures and letting them sit there for six months potentially. And then the season's not even playing anyways. It's not, you know, it's not affecting them ultimately. So it kind of depends on everyone's situation. Um, But I, I would have definitely probably, I'll say probably not definitely, but because I still am an action junkie at heart to some degree, right. but I, I probably would have passed on most of the the preseason work that I put into college football, and I ended up doing it just because we needed some coverage for it, anyways, from from an ESPN standpoint. And so I'm glad I did, though. I'm, I'm I feel like I'm in a pretty good spot now if the season does start on time and everything's good to go here sure. in a month or so. Uh, for the restarts, do you have, you know, I, th- I think the standard thing kind of going around is in the NBA, there'll be a lot of overs because it will sort of be like, you know, how it's treated around the all-star break, right? Going into the all-star break, coming out of the all-star break, a lot of overs because guys aren't that locked in on defense for me. And you mentioned you don't follow hockey all that well. I hockey's the type of sport that it's actually kind of works the opposite because such effort is required to score a goal in hockey, I would be heavily betting or heavily looking to bet the unders as part of Mm -hmm. the restart, right? And obviously different games, you can't just throw the ball down the court the way you can dump a puck down the ice in hockey to keep the score down. Uh, Do you sort of have you know, any opinion on that sort of common thought or any other sort of idea, you know, a lot of people say like, Oh, if, a team, if you're getting points, you know, take them or, you know, like that kind of thing, because mm-hmm. we just don't know what we're getting out of any of these teams. So my general stance is to, if, especially if you're just a recreational better, like to be more cautious with everything sure. before you start betting, 
maybe you do want to watch a few NBA games first to see if like the Wizards are putting out a G League team, even though they're part of this. You know, Bradley right. Bill and earlier today was announced that he's not going to be participating. Yeah. Um, well, they were already just, screwed when Bertans went. Well, in, right? Exactly, yeah, Bertans, my favorite player in the league right now. So, <laughs> they, yeah, they were done for anyway. But uh, just be cautious either way. But I will push back a little bit to just having like a set, like I'm going to do this because of the restart. Uh, I'll push back on the NBA one in the overs. It's sure. true. Like the last few seasons recently, uh, the starts of seasons, the scoring has just been, you know, blitzing out of the gate. Oh, and overs oh, are real, coming in yeah. for like two weeks. And there was some pretty kind of, it goes against what I was saying earlier about second half betting, but there was uh, for a couple of seasons, like the second half numbers were like the, the, the scoring was at such a rate that, the second half numbers were just going back to that pregame total. Like, well, this is what the pregame total was, even though the numbers here at halftime. So this is what, you know, the calculator says it should be. And they weren't really accounting for the, like the first half, you know, was probably actually more predictive than a normal first half because of right. the, the style of play and the NBA changing the pace, plus just the amount of three pointers that have been going up now the past few seasons. Uh, so there, you could just blindly bet second half overs on top of full game overs and just print money for a couple of weeks to start each season. I will say just kind of now going to my point, I'll give a shout out to Mike Buey. He's at InPredict on Twitter, okay. uh, but he put out a thread a few days ago that's worth checking out um, on home court advantage in the NBA. And he used play-by-play data going back to 1996, I believe it was. And he was curious about kind of how home court advantage played out um, on a per-possession basis during the game, like minute by minute over the course of a game. And he ended up finding that, you know, home court kind of drifted down as far as its effectiveness or its value as the game ended, which makes sense because home teams are more likely to win. They're going to be winning more frequently late in games. They're going to, you know, take out their starters and have backups in, in certain cases or certain instances late in games. So the, the home court advantage, the effect wears off. Um, But then he kind of started digging into it a little more and wanted to use all of that data and use win probability added over those times to determine what actually drives that home court advantage because we're all going to it's all going to be a thing now for all these strategies all these restarts whether the baseball football what are fans worth to home court in this sense nba is not going to have fans but they're also playing neutral courts in a bubble that is just this really unique and uncomfortable situation for players so he wanted to break it down and he said there were four main factors that essentially sum up home court advantage um, outside of fans or if you wanted to say refereeing might play a part and that was uh, field goal percentage free throw percentage rebounding and turnovers and the most important factor driving home court advantage uh, was field goal percentage or shooting and home teams just shoot more efficiently Hmm. and so that's just been the case historically since 1996 so if you're not he he went a step further he started looking into how pace uh, is affected based on playing on home court and it's a thing that you know going back since 1996 home teams play at a faster pace until the last few minutes of the game again the home teams are usually up with the lead the game slows down they want to limit possessions so it slows down dramatically the last few minutes of a game in the fourth quarter but overall pace is significantly higher for home teams so now you're throwing out home courts for these teams where they're going to be shooting on new rims they're not playing on a home court where they may be expected to play quicker normally. And they also just haven't played basketball in over four months, like right. real actual basketball. And my thing is I, I was hoping that the market would put up numbers for these games similarly to where they would have been had they matched up at the end of March. Mm-hmm. 
because mm. um, I'd be probably betting a lot of unders, especially if I sure. showed an edge under anyways, just because I think this is some pretty good info and data on it. Uh, unfortunately, you've seen some of the books that have put up totals. They're like eight to 12 points lower than probably where they would have been really? had they played in March. Like They're already accounting for it dramatically. That's and you see it happen kind of on a smaller scale in college basketball with all these teams playing certain conference tournaments in certain spots and early preseason tournaments they're traveling to Hawaii or sometimes they're playing on a ship and like, you know, a yeah. Navy vessel in the middle of the ocean and there's wind. And like, there's always some like things like that in college basketball you're trying to adjust for, but this is kind of the first real experience in the NBA. Um, but I think the market so far is kind of, uh, it's trending way under in general as a, as a huh. whole. And then the question is, and now is it so much so that you should be blind betting overs anyways? So I kind of went full circle there where I don't think you should be betting blind overs. I actually was hoping to be betting more unders, mm. but now they're so low that maybe we do end up betting overs. It's going to be a mess. But uh, that's why yeah. I say just do it cautiously. Don't fire crazily just because sure. there are so many variables, so many unknowns. And I also wouldn't really be finding a ton of futures in, in baseball or NBA yet either until you get like – to the day before it starts just so you actually know who is healthy and not testing positive and is actually able to play. Um, So anyways, yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my range of of thoughts there, but uh, it's, it's kind of hard to really give you a strategy that I know for sure will work or I'm confident in because it's all brand new. Like you said, just never happened before. No, but, and, and it's, and it's worth mentioning though, because it will, it does sort of sound like a narrative versus statistical battle right whereas if you've got all these people talking yeah. about overs and you know you know <laughs> throw you into the mix as the quote-unquote talking head but all the other talking heads are talking about overs in this way and then you come in and go actually there is value you know in theory there should be value to the under and of course you know the sports books are listening to all of this but they're the ones taking into in the money as well and so they're <laughs> they're compensating the other way and so yeah like you said we're going back and forth and back and forth so will you be more aggressive with regards to what you see in the first game from a team, i.e. say the, like, like you, I mean, you gave a good examples, any, like say the wizards are just atrocious. Will mm-hmm. you jump on that for game two a little bit quicker than you normally would? Right. So, I mean, I, again, it's different because the NBA is doing this eight game regular season thing, which I think is kind of a waste of time, but, um, or at least a waste of an opportunity to do something a little more interesting, but you know, the NHL is going right into a playoff situation. Right. And so, you know, for the playoffs, normally if a team loses in the first game of a, of a play of a hockey playoff series, it's a pretty good bet to bet them in the second game, just because that's, because there isn't really much in the way of home ice advantage uh, in the playoffs statistically from a result standpoint. So will you be more aggressive in that case? Because if a team loses 4 nothing in a hockey game in game one, normally I would be like, oh, that team is bouncing back in the second game. But in this case, you know, I'd be like, well, maybe that team just doesn't have it because they're not prepared, you mm-hmm. know. But like if it gets into the whole narrative thing too, then like what does doesn't have it mean? Really, yeah. and what's it worth to a, case, to a point right? spread or or a money line price? Yeah, it's tough. I would say you definitely have to be more aggressive, though, overall, uh, just because there's obviously so much new that is happening. Yeah. And so normally, when I would maybe make an adjustment week one of a football season into week two, it would be a, weighted a lot more heavily than week ten into week eleven. For sure, we should probably be treating these first few games kind of of this NBA regular season before the playoff as if it's like a start of a new season in that sense. Um, but you also don't want to like overlook the fact that 
the setup is probably even more higher variance than the NBA game is already today where they just shoot so many three-pointers and like anything can happen. So if the Wizards go in and with this G League team and lose by 30 in their first game, I wouldn't necessarily go crazy because, you know, they could have just shot 17% from three compared to 40% from the opponent. And so you kind of have to kind of dive in and at least get a grasp of where those significant discrepancies or results are coming from Mm -hmm. and, and then kind of manage it as you go. Uh, Because I think there'll definitely be some early overreactions too, where there will be value on some ugly teams that you don't want to bet on that you'll just have to maybe in games three and four. Right. So it'll be, it'll be kind of a combination of everything. And that's why, you know, it's important to have a base uh, like projection system or, or, or model that gives you an idea where lines should be. And then kind of comparing them to what we've seen and what the market is saying. Uh, like, here's an example, kind of going back to even that over-unders thing. Sure. Like, And I got this from my, my friends at the Deep Dive podcast. I just listened to their podcast. I'm not lying. I listen to every podcast I can. The info is helpful. <laughs> they yeah. they said, so for example, everyone's talking about the Pelicans. We're trying to get the eighth seed in the West or at least the nine spot to go up against Memphis in the play-in tournament thing. But the the ultimate thing was this. Their totals – the last 10 games prior to the shutdown were on average 240. Okay. They're playing, they're playing the jazz in the first game who are generally a slower paced team. That's also pretty elite defensively where uh, I think he, I believe he said that he kind of like said that, you know, late March, that would have been more like 234 against the jazz, a Pelicans jazz total based on like that last subset of games prior to shutdown Zion's back and the way they're playing with Zion and everybody two thirty four would have been the fair price late March jazz Pelicans. Now Bogdanovich is out because of an injury. He's not going to be playing. So that plays a part to some degree, but the opening number on this was two twenty two, I believe they said (laughs) when they opened it as is, and it got bet down to two twenty and a half. Oh wow. So they took a, they took a limit bet or two limit bets on the under anyway. And that was already 12 points lower, which Bogdanovich is not worth 12 points to a total. No. So that's kind of like showing you, I guess, what the market is is saying and assessing right now before we've seen anything based on like where the, these totals should be. But also like if they score 250, then it's probably more likely that the preseason or I should say pre-shutdown set sample set of 10 games is more predictive than the market was for one game, the first game of this really unique situation playing in a bubble after a four and a half month layoff, if that yeah. makes sense. Like yeah. I'm trying to articulate it, but like there's going to be some, I think more predictive value in the early results than there normally would be. And just because you're seeing how drastic some of these numbers are, especially the totals in these matchups where they don't even like kind of make sense when you're looking at, how they were playing in March in February. So definitely mm-hmm. something you just have to be constantly tracking and, and kind of comparing to uh, assess where there may or may not be value. Well, yeah, we certainly have enough time to kind of figure this out as long as there isn't a series of news bombs about people testing positive and all of that. Kind yeah. Of thing, yeah. Right? So, well, I've certainly taken uh, more than enough of your time, Preston. Appreciate all of this. You guys can uh, read Preston on ES- ESPN.com's chalk page. Follow him on Twitter at Sports Cheetah. I should ask, why Sports Cheetah? And is it the thing you said it was a pretty quick, I had to make another account. Mm. Uh, You know, I don't, not that you have any reason to regret it, but do you ever go like, you know, I made that account just on a whim. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I wish I had thought of something different or, you know. Yeah, I I even asked ESPN when they officially were like, hey, we want you to do this show. We're going to hire you. 
uh, like, do you want me to change my Twitter handle to my name or something? And Dave's like, no, just, just leave it. That's just kind of what you're known as. Or So I, I don't regret right. it. It is what it is. But uh, I can tell a quick story. So pre me even, you know, writing that article for, for Todd's blog and, and wanting to do stuff on Twitter, we still used to go down some friends of ours every uh, opening weekend of March Madness to Vegas from Utah. We'd drive down and, and just bet on games. And, you know, my friends were betting like, like, I don't know, 10 or $20 a sure. game, really, really small. Yeah. Um, and one of the days I, I went on a run, like maybe four or five in a row. And like George Mason won as an outright dog that was, that paid pretty big. And I think one of the guys, one of my friends just randomly like jumped out of his seat and is like the sports cheetah, just cause like, I, <laughs> and I don't know why that always like stuck with me, but then it probably was a year and a half later. And I was sitting there, Oh, I need to make a handle something sports betting related. I was like, Oh yeah. I remember when my buddy Steve that one time, like just called me the sports cheetah, like that one weekend in Vegas, I'll just go with sports cheetah. And so I just made it, <laughs> obviously didn't think anything of it or really cared at that point in time. But uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm good with it. It is what it is. That's funny. Uh, anything else to plug on your end? What about ambition? What's going on there? <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a pole and a half. The, so I grew up like, uh, in the music industry. My dad works in the music industry. And I was like, that was why I had food on my table growing up. So uh, music's always been a big part of my life. I, I grew up playing drums in a bunch of punk rock bands. Uh, I started playing and writing and singing and doing a little more stuff with some like indie rock bands in college. This is just, you know, hobby for fun. Sure. Um, then I kind of went back to my roots and a couple of years ago, um, some buddies and I recorded a album like a punk that went back to punk rock and recorded an album with uh ace enders he's the lead vocalist for a couple of bands um the one main one primarily being the early november if anyone has heard of them uh we went out to new jersey and recorded with him so it was a really fun experience but ambition is uh our our band name that we used to record that album and we posted it on Bandcamp, just uh, like a site where you can you can sure. listen to all of the tracks. So that's a nice plug. Yeah, usually people ask, and I'm like, I oh, just go to my Twitter handle or go to ESPN.com. If I write anything, it'll be up there. But uh, yeah, if you like punk rock music or like pop punk more than anything, um, check out Ambition. I think it's Bandcamp slash. Uh, I think it's Ambition CA, like Ambition California CA, and uh, oh. you can find the the tracks there. Well, there you go. You'll be touring Canada in no time. I hope I hope not. I don't <laughs> want to be touring during this uh, whatever we're going through. Probably, hey, this is the I, safest I bad. place to be, man. This is the safest. It's actually, place it to is. Be it America. isn't bad up there. You're right about that. But <laughs> I, I feel bad for all these bands that just like they can't tour. They make all this money touring, and like no one's doing anything. You can't do shows. Entertainment oh. industry as a whole is just a tough, tough time. Yeah, it's rough. He's a man of many talents. Continued health and success to you and your family, Preston. Thanks so much for doing this. Yep, no problem. That's it for this episode of The Window. We went long again, but you can't blame two guys who like betting from talking betting. And Preston is a wealth of knowledge. So thanks to him for that. As for me, I'm at MRussAuthentic on Twitter. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Until next time, I'll see you at The Window. 